0: Today's scripture is Matthew 9, 1 through 8. Uh, It's entitled in my Bible, Jesus Heals a Paralytic. Um, We don't use that term anymore. We would say a paralyzed man at this point. Um, And I believe the newer versions do say that. Um, You can follow along in your own Bible, if you'd like, or the Bible in the Pew Rack. It's found on page 963 in the Bibles in the Pew Rack. Or it will be in the overhead behind me. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. This is God's word.
1: Go ahead and find your way back to uh, Matthew chapter 9. Again, if you're using the Bible in the rack in front of you, that's page 963. Despite the way we sometimes treat God or approach prayer, uh, God is not some kind of genie in a bottle whose only purpose of existing is to satisfy our wildest dreams. But this morning, I want to begin with a little experiment. Uh, If God were like a genie, he's not, okay? But if he were, and if you could ask him to grant you just one thing, what would it be? If you could ask only one thing of God, What would you ask for? In fact, go ahead and and write your answer down on on your worship folder somewhere. Just think about that. I want you to really, what would I ask for? Now, some of us hear a question like that, and and we're kind of like a kid with one dollar walking into a candy store. We're just overwhelmed by the options, you know. Um, Our oldest two just finished swim lessons uh, at Doug Pond for the last three weeks, and a couple times a week, they get to go to the snack bar and pick out one thing. And it's kind of funny, because every time they get in line, they know exactly what they're going to get. But by the time they get to the front of the line, and the guy asks, what do you want? And they just kind of freeze. Because they realize, you know, I can only get one thing. Am I sure this is the one thing that I want? And, and so, you know, some of us hear that question. You know, if I could only ask one thing from God, and maybe we're a little overwhelmed by the options, because basically we're asking ourselves, how do I get the most mileage out of this, you know, to be honest? And yet others among us hear a question like that, and we don't have to think about it at all. Uh, our lives have been so dominated by a particular longing, something that we've lived with for years, that we long to be free from, physical disability, a disease, a debt. Or things that we've longed for for years and that our hearts just can't seem to rest without. Whether it's a spouse or a child or a certain career or or a certain home. We don't have to think about what we would ask God because we ask him for the same thing day in and day out. And we don't know how to ask him for anything else. And the man that we meet at the beginning of our story this morning would probably have been in that second category if he were ever posed with a question like this. Matthew 9, verses 1 through 2 read, Jesus stepped into a boat and crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic, a paralyzed man, lying on a mat. Now when your life and mobility are debilitated by a paralysis like this, such that your friends have to carry you somewhere if you want to go anywhere, I can't imagine that it would be very difficult to figure out what would I ask God for if I ever had the chance. You know, and as the reports of Jesus' ministry had gone throughout the region, uh, you know, here's a man who has the authority to heal disease, and as Jesus now shows up in this man's area, he comes back across the Sea of Galilee after having delivered the, uh, cast out the demons uh, of the, the men on the other side. He comes across that sea to his own city, Capernaum, which is where he had moved to from Nazareth back in chapter 4. So, Jesus is in the region. This man and his friends hear that. They decide they must get to Jesus. Here's someone who can do something about the disease that has so dominated this person's life. The compassion and determination of this man's companions is a beautiful picture of true friendship. Uh, We don't see the details in Matthew's account, but if we were to read the parallel passages in Mark or in Luke, uh, we would see how not only did this man's friends carry him to Jesus on his bed, because obviously he had no other way to get there, when they couldn't get through the crowds into the house, they carried him up to the roof, dug a hole through the roof, disassembled it in order to lower him down and get him to Jesus in order to be healed. Isn't that beautiful picture of friendship? This man and his friends recognized Jesus' authority. They had heard of the healings and they came genuinely believing that Jesus could do something about this paralysis. Matthew, however, doesn't spend hardly any time at all on this man or his friends, describing them and so on. Instead, he makes a beeline to his main point, his startling and rather scandalous main point. We've seen in this gospel so far Jesus' authority to teach, to heal diseases, to calm storms and cast out demons... But what Matthew wants us to see in this passage and what Jesus wants those crowded around him to see in that house is that he is the king who has authority to forgive sins. He is the king who has authority to forgive sins. the middle of verse 2, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, Matthew is not naive to the fact that this world is broken and shattered, that it doesn't work the way that it's supposed to, and that one of the sharpest reminders of that is the physical pain and disability that so many live with daily. And yet, he wants us to see in our passage this morning that the heart of Jesus' mission is not mere physical wholeness, Rather, Jesus came to deal with the root problem, the problem from which all other problems come. The greatest need that, when it's dealt with, begins to heal all other needs. He came to deal with our sin and to bring forgiveness between unworthy sinners and His Holy Father in Heaven. And He alone has authority to do that. So let's pray together as we look at this passage and consider this story of the king who has authority to forgive our sins. Lord, that is what we want from you this morning, to see you more clearly. Lord, we thank you that you have made yourself known through your word. And so we pray that this morning as we look into it, you would in fact open our ears to hear you, open our hearts and our eyes to see you. And to be changed by you and your spirit, Lord. And God, I do not know the different stories uh, of everyone gathered here. I don't know what we bring with us when we come in here. And the different burdens and concerns we bear. But you do. And I pray that you administer your word to each heart. And to us as a congregation to see you more clearly. To see you for who you are and to rejoice and follow you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. There's something shocking, if not downright scandalous, about the emphasis that Jesus and, of course, Matthew, the gospel writer, place in this story on his authority to forgive sins. First, it's scandalous from the perspective of the paralyzed man and his friends, or at least from our perspective as those kind of sympathizing with them and their request to, for healing, which seems to, to at first to go callously ignored. So that's a bit of a scandal to us, and that's what we see in verses 1 through 2, where Jesus reveals his authority to forgive sins. But there's a second scandal in the passage as well, and that is the scandal uh, of the scribes and the religious leaders uh, at Jesus' claim to have the authority to forgive sins. That's outrageous to them, and that's the second Thing that we see in verses 3 through 8, where Jesus vindicates his authority to forgive sins. But we'll start with the first scandal in verses 1 through 2, where Jesus reveals his authority to forgive sins. And let's read verses 1 through 2 again. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven." Now this is by no means the first time that the sick have come or have been brought to Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Uh, we go back to Matthew 4:23 through24. It describes how Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of his kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. People brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. So this has been going on, and and we just saw at the beginning of chapter 8 three more examples of Jesus's authority to heal disease. And so When these men bring their friend to Jesus, believing and expecting him to be healed, we can't fault their aim or their request, and we certainly can't fault their faith. Even Jesus recognizes in them a genuine faith. Now, some have discussed whether, you know, is it the faith of the friends on behalf of the paralyzed man, or is it all five of their faith? You know, who is it exactly that that is believing here? And I think Jesus' response makes it clear that this man, along with his friends, came believing that whoever this Jesus is, we can trust him to, to deal with this disease. We've heard the stories. We believe he can do it. But again, Jesus, to the surprise of everyone, deals with the deeper need the more fundamental need than physical disability, in accordance with his faith, they forgive. Jesus forgives his sins. Now, I don't know. You hear that. And honestly, it feels a bit like ordering a steak and being served an empty plate with a little garnish on the side. You know? It's kind of a nice finishing touch there on the edge, but... I'm not sure how that's going to fill me up or deal with my need, but the hunger that I have. So it's kind of a nice bonus, the forgiveness thing, but what am I supposed to do with that lying here on this mat? But the fact that Jesus' response of, of focusing on forgiveness is a shock to us, at least initially, suggests that we may have a, a pretty significant flaw in our general perspective of things. We have a tendency to focus on earthly needs and problems while overlooking the bigger spiritual picture of God's kingdom and our deeper spiritual need to be forgiven of our sins and reconciled with God. In fact, this is so pervasive among North American Christians that that sociologists suggest it's actually become its own functional religion. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but in a study on the religious and spiritual lives of American teenagers, uh, sociologist Christian Smith found that, quote, the de facto dominant religion among contemporary U.S. teenagers is what we might call moralistic, therapeutic deism. In short, God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call. He takes care of any problems that arise. He professionally helps his people feel better about themselves. And he does not become too personally involved in the process. And that's not only true of teenagers and young people. Many of them learned that from watching the religious lives of their parents. And... You know, lest we think we're immune from that line of thinking, take a quick look at what you wrote down on your folder at the beginning of the service. I would venture to guess that a lot of what we wrote down, that one thing we would ask God if we could, probably has more to do with the earthly realm than the heavenly one. That's our default mode of thinking. It's to focus on earthly needs and problems, which is not only to overestimate what the world can give us, it's also to underestimate the problem of sin. Now, we don't always like to talk about sin. It's, a, it's an uncomfortable subject for many of us, and we find it rather unloving to suggest to somebody that, like me, they too are a sinner. Though so it's no more unloving than, than a doctor being honest with a patient about a diagnosis, if it's a real diagnosis... It, You know, If sin is a real problem, we ignore it in our own lives and in the lives of our friends to everyone's peril. And what we mean by that word, what the Bible means by that word in its most basic sense, is disobedience and rebellion against God. It's essentially saying to God, our Creator and our King, thanks for making me, but I think I'll take it from here. I I think I'm going to do a better job, I'm going to run things on my own, And, and, you know, your rules are just, they're outdated and such. We've got this one, okay? And we can handle it. And the result of that sin, of that rebellion, of saying to God who is the rightful king that, that we don't want you as our king, the result of that is not only the fall of creation. If we were to go back and read Genesis 3 and, and just see the world unravel, the fabric of creation torn such that poverty, violence, disease, like, paralysis and such, all of that enters into the story as a result of human rebellion. Not only does that happen, but far worse than anything on the earthly plane is the tear in the fabric between humanity's relationship with God. We are separated from our God in judgment because of sin. We want to run things on our own terms, but that doesn't mean that God isn't still king and doesn't still have a right and even a moral obligation to do something about it when his people turn against him. Now again, that, that might sound severe to some of us, and, and no doubt some of us are thinking, you know, judgment, that's kind of a, you know, a little bit of an overkill here. Uh, we don't think we're quite that bad, at least, especially compared to that guy over there. But the severity of our sin is not measured against that guy. It's measured against the holiness of God. And the reason we think little of our sin is because we think little of God, of his majesty, his worthiness, his his holiness, his moral perfection. We're unimpressed. Our earthly perspective clouds us from seeing God for who he is and therefore from seeing sin for what it is. And so we focus on our earthly needs and, and problems instead. And this is a temptation not just at the personal level not just my own heart and life. It's a temptation at the broader institutional level of the church as well. For the last 200 or so years, the Western church has struggled with the temptation, and I think even more so in New England, to downplay the spiritual aspect of our mission. Especially the ideas of Christ's exclusivity, of repentance or sin or God's wrath. Just to to kind of apologize embarrassingly about those and move them to the side and instead focus on meeting human needs at a human earthly level. Good things to be sure, you know, dealing with poverty or sickness or education or civil rights and the like. But what's happened, sadly, is that you can walk into countless churches in New England and the Bible holds no authority. The gospel of Jesus, the, the good news that even though sin is, is bad news, That there is a God who loves us, who sent his son to take that sin on himself in our place. To give us the credit for his righteous life. So that God can deal mercifully with sinners like us and justly with sin. That we might be reconciled to him and enjoy relationship with him. and, And life forever instead of eternal death. That message of the gospel of Christ isn't preached. And so what's left is simply a social service organization, which may do a lot of earthly good, but has nothing of eternal value to offer people, and therefore leaves them under the condemnation of God, because it does not offer Christ. There's nothing more tragic. Now, if we're going to be fair and honest, the evangelical church has often made the opposite error. Focusing only on the spiritual needs at the expense of very real physical needs. Loving people in word only, but not also in deed. The physical problems that people face in this world, and, and we're not talking about them, we're talking about us too. They're real problems. And you and I both know that. And, and therefore, if we love someone, we're going to care about finding real solutions to those real problems. And if we don't care about that, we're not loving them very well, are we? But but though we are rightly to be faulted when our love... If our love never translates into getting our hands dirty with the real junk of, of, of people's lives and, and the hard stuff of this world, we are rightly to be faulted if that happens. And yet what we see in our passage is that while both physical and spiritual problems are real, Jesus does in fact prioritize the spiritual because it is the bigger problem and therefore the deeper need. As Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert put it, there is something worse than death and something better than human flourishing. If we hope only for renewed cities and restored bodies in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. As good and fulfilling as something like health or education or financial stability are, they're worth less than a nickel when it comes to the delight and satisfaction of being forgiven and, and reconciled to God and enjoying relationship with Him for eternity in His new heavens and new earth. They can't hold a candle in comparison to that joy. As tragic and enslaving as something like paralysis or debt or any number ...of trials in our life can be. They are better than all the riches of this world... ...compared to the horror of eternal judgment. Sin is the bigger problem. It's the problem from which all the other ones stem. And so therefore, forgiveness is the deeper need. And so it is that Jesus came... ...we were told clear back in Matthew one twenty one ...to save his people from their sins. That's the heart... Of his mission. So to look at Jesus' words to the paralytic here, what seems at first like a kind of a callous and irrelevant response is actually truly deeply compassionate and hopeful. Sometimes God surprises us by giving us not what we ask for, but what we need. So it is that Jesus isn't settling for just the fruit of the problem of the fall. He's going after the root. He's going after the source of it. He's dealing with the bigger problem. And if that's true of Jesus, then we should not allow our longings or our prayers to deal only with earthly needs and earthly problems. We deal with those because they're real, but we can't stop there. When you pray for your friends or for your children or for yourself, do your prayers focus only on safety and health and success and stuff? That's kind of the you know, the holy quadrant of prayer requests there. Do we focus only on those things or do we go deeper? Are we asking God to change hearts? Are we asking that... that God would make himself known to our children, that they would have faith in the Lord, and that that God would change their hearts to to look more like Jesus, and to free them from guilt and from sin and from their shame, to fill their hearts with the love of the Father. Are we asking God to make them more like Jesus, to satisfy their hearts with Jesus, so that their joy in this life isn't based on the circumstances but it's secure and always beautiful and vibrant because it's anchored in Jesus and not in stuff. So that they're free to lay their lives down for the sake of his gospel. Do our prayers go there, below the surface? If Jesus is concerned with the deeper problems, so should we be. And again, not just at the personal level, but also in our ministries as well. We cannot ignore Real, physical, earthly problems. And again, I think the evangelical church has a lot of repentance to do in that area. Because that's been a sad overcorrection to some of the uh, trajectories uh, over the last 200 years. We cannot ignore it. And yet, we cannot stop there either. We must hold forth the gospel of God's saving grace in all that we do. As John Piper has said, as Christians... We care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Think about that. We care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. That's the heart of Jesus' mission. And he has authority on earth to do something about it. To forgive our sins before our holy God and Father. And so he says to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. But before we can actually even see that man's response or the response of his friends, Matthew turns our attention to another audience in the story who was equally shocked and exceedingly outraged at Jesus' declaration. And that's the scribes or the teachers of the law. And that's the second scandal in our passage where Jesus vindicates his authority to forgive sins. So, look with me at verse 3. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow's blaspheming. Astute observation. Now, Matthew doesn't elaborate as to why they thought this, uh, whereas both Mark and Luke spell it out for us. Only God can forgive sins. The theology is actually pretty accurate on that one. So, So just who does this Jesus think he is to proclaim the forgiveness of sins over this person? Only God can do that, as we see in passages like Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. So in pronouncing this man forgiven of his sins, and there's no sacrifice or offering, we're not at the temple, anything like that, Jesus is exercising an authority that only God has the right to exercise. And so from the perspective of the scribes, he's blaspheming. He is slandering God by making himself equal with him. Now, if Jesus were mere man, the scribes would be dead right in their analysis. But whereas in the first instance, we were blinded by focusing on earthly problems, and needs, and missing the spiritual. Here, the scribes go astray by focusing on earthly solutions to sin. See, they recognized that sin was the deeper problem. They had no dispute with that. What they disagreed with was Jesus' claim to have authority to forgive them. They rejected heaven's answer to the sin problem and instead continued trusting in their own answer to it. They focused on an earthly solution. But Jesus is no mere man, is he? He's both fully God and fully human. And as such, he alone is qualified and authorized to forgive sins. So look at how he responds to this private accusation. First, he exposes publicly what they were thinking and saying in private, which is kind of the first tip of the hat that the person they're dealing with is no mere man. Verse four says, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? That had to freak them out to begin with. But second, he challenges their logic in verse five. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Now honestly, readers of of these, of this verse have Long argued, which of those is more easier, you know, easier than the other one? You know, on the one hand, if we're talking about just mouthing the words, get up, you know, your sins are forgiven, well, there's no real proof of that one, so it's kind of easier to say. But I think Jesus is actually going the other way with it. You know, if, if you're waiting around for me to heal the guy as some proof of my authority, then you've missed the point. I've already done the more difficult thing, the thing that only God can do. I've forgiven him. So he challenges their logic. But if that is their game, Jesus says, I'll play ball. So he proves his authority to forgive by accomplishing the easier task as well. He says in verse 6, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin, has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Translation for the scribes, put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. There's no question left now. And again here, notice how he refers to himself as the Son of Man. He's the one from Daniel 7 who, who suffers And triumphs on behalf of God's people. And therefore receives authority as king. Right alongside God's throne. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Because he himself became sin. Even though he knew. He had no sin. Or knew no sin. He took our sins on himself. The whole rebellion of all humanity against God. And the full weight of God's holy anger against that sin. He took it. All on himself on the cross. Exhausting the wrath. Again, so that God deals justly with sin. It is punished. And yet he deals mercifully with sinners. He forgives. He says, the debt is paid. It's canceled. You are no longer guilty. You are now invited into relationship with me. Into my kingdom. Into my family. As my child. He takes it on himself... And suffers for us, but second, he has authority to forgive because he has also triumphed over sin and death through his resurrection from the dead. He now sits in heaven at the right hand of God as our great high priest interceding even now for us. Because of who he is and what he's done, Jesus alone has authority to deal with our greatest problem, to meet our deepest need. And again, he makes that point and silences his critics by healing this young man. But again, before we can now see the response of the scribes, Matthew shifts the attention one more time, now back to the paralyzed man and to the crowds who've been watching. Verses 7 through 8 show us the result of Jesus' miracle. And the man got up and went home. I mean, you can't say more about it than that. He got up and went home. This is an amazing miracle. And it's Jesus' authority is so definitive, he got up and went home. What Jesus said happened. And the crowds, when they saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. The paralyzed man walks away, not only forgiven the deeper need, but also now healed. Taking, you imagine, taking the first steps after so long of laying on that mat. How incredible. The crowds are amazed. They respond in praise. But it's interesting that their amazement doesn't seem to come from faith or recognition of Jesus' unique authority as the Son of Man and true King. They too seem stuck in an earthly perspective that, that God has given such authority to humans But they haven't connected the dot to this human, to Jesus, the true man, the Son of God, who has that authority. And like both the crowds and the scribes, we too share the risk of missing Jesus by looking only to earthly solutions to the problem of sin. We can get stuck on our earthly problems. We can also get stuck on our earthly solutions. We may even recognize that sin is in fact the biggest problem. But if we don't recognize that Jesus is the solution to that problem, whether maybe because we don't really want to actually give up control of our lives and give that over to him, or maybe because we really don't think we're that bad to need him, if we don't recognize that Jesus is the solution to the problem, we haven't dealt with the problem at all. We might even be amazed at what God has the ability to do. Wow, that's cool. How powerful is God? But God is not asking for our amazement. Neither is he asking for us to try harder and and fix our lives by ourselves. Uh, He's not not asking for us to to put our lives back together and then come to him. He's asking for our trust. Right where we are, the whole mess of our lives, he's asking for our trust. To say no to all other would-be saviors whether it's our own works, our religious activities, our community service, our Bible knowledge, whatever it is that we're hoping in before God, instead of Jesus, to say no to that and to put the full weight of our hope and our trust before God in Him. And when we trust Him and realize what it is to be forgiven of our sin to have the debt that we owed canceled, to, to have our name cleared of the charges against us and invited into relationship with God, even though we deserve the absolute opposite of it. We will be amazed. We will be amazed. when, Not at what God can do, but at what God has done for me, a weak, miserable, unworthy sinner, That God would so look upon and pardon because of his son. And invite me into his family. That is amazing. That is amazing. King Jesus has authority to deal with my biggest problem. It's not just theoretical. It's my biggest problem. It's my deepest need. He has authority to deal with it on earth. So look again at your worship folder. You know, that whatever word or phrase you maybe or maybe didn't scribble on there at the beginning, but you know what you thought of. That one thing that you would ask God if if you could only ask one thing. Now, I don't know what you wrote, and, and, and I don't need to. We're not going to collect these at the end of the service and, and things like that. And I don't doubt the legitimacy of the of the earthly needs that we wrote down, uh, I don't doubt that, that they are very real, deep problems, and nor am I suggesting that God doesn't care about them. He does care. In fact, he promises to do something about it, sometimes in advance, but certainly in the end when Christ returns. But here's the question. Were you to come to Jesus with that request and to hear instead, Take heart, my child. Your sins are forgiven. Would it be enough? Is it enough for you to know that through faith in Christ, your biggest problem has been decisively dealt with? That your deepest need has been eternally secured? That no one can take it away? Is it enough to know that in this fallen world, even if I have nothing else... I have relationship with my creator, my king, my savior, my father in heaven. Would that be enough? If not, I'm not sure you understand what Jesus came to do. If you find that unimpressive or boring or irrelevant, just like a garnish on the edge of an empty plate, then I'm not sure you've accurately diagnosed the problem in this world, or that you're tuned in to God's solution, there is something worse than sickness and poverty and death. There is something better than health and wealth and human flourishing. There is God, the terror of being separated from him for eternity, or the joy of eternal life with him in his presence free from guilt and shame, cleansed and enjoying his blessing as part of his family, as a servant of his kingdom for the sake of his glory for all eternity. And this life and this joy, Jesus says, is only through faith in me. He's the one who has authority to give it. And so you've got to come through him. Whom have I in heaven? But you, says the psalmist, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to see your face. And Lord, I recognize that for some, that is a terrible thought. Because we sit and and we know how we've lived our lives. We know what we did this morning, and and it wasn't pretty. And the thought of coming into your presence and seeing your face is terrifying. But Lord, thank you that we have one who has come, who has lived a perfect life on our behalf who is and does everything we were supposed to be and to do, but we failed. Thank you that we have a faithful representative who's not only done what you requested, but who's taken our mistakes, our sin, our rebellion, our weakness, even our sickness, our disease, everything that's wrong with this world, he's taken it on himself in our place so that we can approach you not terrified of judgment, but elated that we can call you Father. God, may that overwhelm our hearts as we consider the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done. May it fill our hearts as we sing to him, to you in response. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.